Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains references to war and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 125, Peace in Our Time. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Mueupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngati Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash historyaltero. Last time, we talked about the most common elements of Māori warfare, the elements of surprise and deception, as well as how they captured Pa. Today, we will talk about what happens in the immediate aftermath of a battle, and how peace was made. Just like a battle anywhere else in the world, the time when the most casualties occurred was when a towa was routed and were chased, sometimes for hours at a time. In one case, the last survivor of a towa was killed 30 kilometres from the original battlefield. Toa in the pursuing army, who were fast runners, would speed ahead of the rest of the army and stab, jab, or otherwise just quickly smack the enemy as they ran by, so that they could keep going to catch the others, leaving the person they just hit on the ground for the slower guys to finish him when they caught up. When a towa broke and fled, the soldiers would often split up and head into the bush, mountains or other rough terrain, in the hopes that they would evade their pursuers and return to their homes in a few days, or find refuge with another hapu. Sometimes this would actually be part of the plan, and after the towa disappeared into the bush, they would regroup at a prearranged location. Tekuti, a famous religious leader and guerrilla fighter of Rongofukata in the mid-19th century, was apparently a big fan of this. 
According to one guy from Tuhoi who spoke to Best, it wasn't uncommon for people to seek shelter in the land rather than a pa if they came under attack. Quote, The rugged canyons were our stockades, the steep ranges and deep forests were our earthworks. End quote. The idea of being the sole survivor was a popular tale that people would tell, saying that they were the only person who survived a massive battle. However, it's hard to verify if these were true, because Māori weren't exactly counting the precise number of casualties, and stories saying that you were the sole survivor of a towa were a lot better than, well, some dudes did get away, but I don't know where they are now. Māori oral tradition does mention battles where thousands of people were killed, but these are likely exaggerations, except for maybe a few. Of course, members of the enemy towa could be taken alive rather than just killed. Sometimes, the victorious rangatira wanted to spear someone's life, and to do so would put their kākahu on them, occasionally while the battle was still ongoing. Doing this made the person tapu, but since the source of tapu is the rangatira's mana, if that chief didn't have a lot of it, the tapu may not be respected. Sparing someone in this way could be for a number of reasons. Perhaps that person was needed for marriage and future peacemaking. Or perhaps it was someone related to the chief, and so didn't want them killed. In general though, it seems that most enemies were killed, or kept to be killed later. Enslavement seems to have only been the fate of a very few. Part of the idea being that a man that you leave alive today could come back stronger to fight you tomorrow. And that time, he might win. He can't do that if he's dead. Women and children tended to be enslaved more often than men, who tended to be killed outright for the aforementioned reason. Those who had been taken as slaves seemed to have been regarded as dead by their kinsmen, and they didn't tend to make the effort to rescue them, as it would be too costly to do so. Familial relations were really important in Māori society, so to absolve someone of their relationship to you was pretty severe. A former slave could have that disgrace on them forever. As such, POWs tended to want to stay with their captors, rather than go back to their own hapu when offered the chance. Slavery was sometimes considered worse than death itself, due to the whakama associated with it, despite the fact that slaves were, in a sense, treated pretty well by their masters. They were well-fed, not expected to overwork themselves, and although they were on the lowest rung of the social ladder, they were still regarded as human beings, so they were afforded the basic fundamental human rights of the time. 
slavery in pre-European Māori society was more akin to serfdom rather than chattel slavery. That's not to say it was good or nice to be a slave, it was almost certainly a horrible experience, as I've already detailed with the whakamā shame associated with it. However, the physical conditions were likely better than the transatlantic slave trade, which is what most people think of when they hear the word slavery. Rangatira and Ariki were rarely taken prisoner. They would either die in battle or would be executed if captured, given they were the leaders and too dangerous to be left alive. As we have discussed in the past, rangatira and other important people were cooked in a hangi and eaten. Afterwards, they sometimes had their bones kept and turned into various items, like flutes, fish hooks, tips for spears, leg rings for kaka, pins for holding clothes, and all sorts of other items. Skulls could be used to carry water for hangi, or to use for baling in waka. However, most bones were broken up and burned in a fire. This was to ensure their relatives wouldn't be able to collect them to bury in their sacred sites. If they didn't want to burn them, the bones could just be left wherever all around the hangi where people had dropped them. These actions were a pretty massive insult. They were essentially designed to spiritually damn the deceased and disconnect future generations from them. And if they were able to turn the bones into a useful item, then that would just be salt in the wound. The more mana a person had, the more time would be taken to really make sure they got full use out of his body, including another high-ranking chief eating the eyes. Sometimes a rangatira's head might be kept and turned into a toimoko so that it could be taken home and insulted, or otherwise yelled at, by the hapu if they particularly hated him. Losing rangatira in battle was obviously pretty bad and was a big hit to morale. Sometimes, if a lot of rangatira died on a single battlefield, the area would be declared tapu and no one would be allowed to traverse the area or collect kai from there. So it was essentially a rahui. In some cases, this wouldn't be lifted for over 50 years. Sometimes, a block of stone or a po would be set up to mark where a particularly notable person was killed on a battlefield, so that their descendants may know of the site. However, in some regions, this would be marked by a pokapoka. This was a hole dug in the ground that would be somewhere fairly obvious, or at least right where the person died, often being dug by the person's children. While on campaign, it was common to cremate the bodies of allies who died in battle, again to ensure they didn't fall into enemy hands. Cremation was fairly common in peacetime, but only in areas where there weren't many places to bury bodies, that is, caves or hollow trees. 
So to avoid anyone untoward finding the body and using it for makatu or similar, they would instead cremate it. By and large, if Māori had a good place to rest their dead that could be kept secret, they would use that. However, during times of war, practicality seems to have outweighed spiritual needs. Or, to put it another way, cremation wasn't seen as a bad way to send off the dead. It was just considered better to be buried with your tipuna, if that was possible. If the person was a rangatira or someone else important, then there was a middle ground to be had. Their head would be cut off before cremation, so that it could be taken back home and preserved as a toimoko. Of course, not all casualties in battle would be deaths. Many were injuries. To be wounded was called tautu or tuakiri, the former term used before muskets and the latter used after, as it seems each word was related to the method of being wounded, i.e. with a spear or with a gun. If someone was injured on the battlefield and needed to be taken away, but couldn't walk, their comrades would make a stretcher from two wooden poles with vines between them. It was rare to leave wounded on the battlefield, especially knowing that if they were left alone and captured, then they would be killed later or eaten. So it only happened in the most dire situations. In one case that best mentions, they even burned their own wounded alive to ensure their bodies couldn't be defiled by the enemy. I realise that's quite horrible, but I want to illustrate how much they absolutely did not want themselves or their friends to be captured by the enemy knowing that they would likely be defiled in some way and then permanently lose their connection to their descendants. Their wairua would essentially be cut off from the wider spiritual and material world, or possibly even destroyed entirely. And that was something they wanted to avoid at all costs. However, in saying that, not all people captured were executed. Mercy was an important concept in Māori society as well, and someone who was said to have a, quote, mind divided between the fighting and pity for the vanquished, end quote, was called a tangata kopurua. To give you an example, here is a story from Elston Best. Quote, when Mohaka, the famous seer of the Wairoa tribe, lifted the war trail against Tuhoi, there were two papa, tokens, of the matakite, or prophecy a lone tree, and a light-haired man. This man was to be caught and degraded, but was on no account to be slain. However, when he was caught, one of his captors did not wish to see him degraded for life, and showed his sympathy for the unfortunate man by killing him, that he might die as a man, his honour and dignity untarnished. Thus, he saved his enemy from degradation and proved himself a tangata kopurua. 
nor would the relatives and friends of the slain man look upon the slayer as a tama'ahara, inasmuch as he had saved their chief from losing caste for all time. End quote. Tama'ahara being someone who has committed a sin. So essentially, his friends and family would let his killer kind of off the hook because he did the man a mercy by not having him be degraded in front of his people. Mercy could also take the form of the besieging party giving food to the besieged, though we aren't entirely sure why this happened. As some older scholars mention, it could indicate a love of fighting, Giving your food to the enemy so they last longer may indicate that you just like being in a fight with them. However, this idea is rather outdated and is probably based on, frankly, racist logic. For my money, it's probably something closer to ensuring that any non-combatants inside the par don't starve to death, or at the very least, the ones related to the attackers which they care about. Though, again, we truly don't know why this happened. The aftermath of a battle didn't just involve taking lives. There would be stuff to take, too. Since Māori didn't have horses or carts or anything like that, plunder was only limited to what they could carry on their person. Or in their waka if they had brought one. Because of that limitation, booty often included smaller items like weapons, mats, earrings, fish hooks, and weaved goods like baskets. Apparently, as a general rule, if you killed someone in battle, you had the right to take their clothes and weapons. However, this might be subject to rituals to remove the tapu first. Having these claims widely understood, and adding a minor spiritual barrier to overcome before using them, likely served the practical purpose of stopping soldiers from looting the dead while the battle was still ongoing, or when the enemy was being pursued. If everyone knew what stuff they had the rights to, and also knew that they probably had to take it to a tohunga to go through a bit of a ritual, then they're unlikely to stop mid-battle and start grabbing everything they could see, because in theory, there would be no disputes as to who had claim to what loot. And if you had to take it to a tohunga anyway, who's probably busy doing his own thing, then there wasn't much point in stopping mid-battle to grab as much booty as you could gather. Which was good for the leaders of the towa to keep the army's cohesion and ensure they actually won the battle. Because if an army was more interested in looting the fallen, it could result in the enemy getting the upper hand and causing you to lose the battle. Or, if the enemy was already running away, then much of them may escape. This also meant that sometimes hapu would have secret places that they hid their precious items, like mere or other family heirlooms passed down through the generations. Part of the reason that these secret hidey holes were necessary was that sometimes the enemy would know about these items and specifically target them for booty. The valuable wakatoa could be carried into the pa if they knew someone was coming to attack. 
Alternatively, a hapu could hide their waka in a creek by putting heavy rocks into it, making it sink, where it hopefully wouldn't be found by the enemy, and instead could be retrieved later. Sometimes that's not quite how it went down though. Occasionally, a wakatoa was so well hidden that the enemy didn't find it, but also the original owners either couldn't find it again or they were wiped out and the knowledge of their wakatoa went with them. So it is possible that there are some wakatoa just hiding out there, dormant, just waiting to be found. As was the case in June 2023, when one of these wakatoa was found in the Patia River in Taranaki. At time of recording, that wakatoa is thought to be from around the late 1860s, which would put it smack bang during the New Zealand wars. If the towa consisted of one hapu, then dividing any loot was relatively straightforward, with the rangatira getting the final say. However, if the towa consisted of multiple hapu, which was likely, then arguments could arise over who got what. So again, rules around how to claim certain items were very important. One method of claiming an item, usually a waka, was to be the first person to touch it. In one case, a dispute between chiefs over a captured wakatoa meant that they stalled and their enemy escaped. So, just like the ordinary toa, rangatira weren't immune to improper timing when it came to arguing over the spoils. This specific example actually involved the four chiefs climbing into the waka and attempting to, quote, outsit one another for possession, end quote. Just being the first to touch an item wasn't a foolproof way to make a claim. People could touch the item at roughly the same time and that sort of thing. So thankfully, there was another way to, by and large, avoid these disputes. This was a custom called tapa-tapa, where a rangatira had the right to claim any booty he wanted by either tying a piece of his clothes to it, or naming it as an extension of his body. Or, in some other way, essentially tying his mana to it and making it tapu. A specific example of this comes from 1823, when Napuhi attacked Tiarua on Makoya Island in Lake Rotorua. Before the attack commenced in full, the Napuhi rangatira spotted Tiarua's waka being paddled around the lake. Seeing this, the rangatira began to divvy up which waka belonged to who. Quote, the Napuhi, of course, considered all these canoes as their own already. But the different chiefs and leaders, anxious to secure one or more of these fine canoes for themselves and people, and not knowing who might be the first to lay hands on them in the confusion of the storming of Makoya, each tuppered one or more for himself. Or, as the native expression is, to himself. Up jumped Pomare, 
and standing on the lake shore, he shouts, pointing at the same time to a particular canoe, at the time carrying about 60 men. That canoe is my backbone. Then Tariha, in bulk like a sea elephant, and sinking to the ankles in the shore of the lake, with a hoarse, croaking voice, roars out, That canoe, my skull, shall be the bailer to bail it out. This was a horribly strong tapa. Then, the soft voice of the famous Hongi Ika, surnamed the Eater of Men, of Hongi Kai Tangata, was heard. Those two canoes are my two thighs. And so, the whole flotilla was appropriated by the different chiefs. Now, it followed from this that in the storming and plunder of Makoya, when a warrior clapped his hand on a canoe and shouted, This canoe is mine, the seizure would not stand good if it was one of the canoes which were tapa-tapa. For it would be a frightful insult to Pomare to claim to be the owner of his backbone or to Tariha to go on board a canoe which had been made sacred by the bare supposition that his skull would be a vessel to bail it with, end quote. So, the battle is over. Pa have been captured, and plunder taken. Or, perhaps the attacking Toa was repelled. But either way, lives have been lost, and at least one side wants an end to the hostilities. How do they make the war come to an end? For Māori, generally the side that sued for peace would be the ones who had lost. Initiating peace talks was often seen as a sign of weakness. You had fought to the bitter end and could take no more. This would make things complicated during the New Zealand Wars, as described here from the perspective of defending Māori against the colonial government. Quote, After our defeat at Rangiriri, overtures of peace were proposed to us, but though we had lost our pa and many men, we never sued to the Pākehā for peace. To sue for peace is a confession of weakness, an acknowledgement that one is beaten. We invariably treated all these offers with contempt. Numbers of times the Pākehā sent heralds of peace to us, proclaimed it almost without our knowledge in the Gazette, sent flags of truce to us to treat for peace, just as if they had experienced all the reverses and losses themselves that we had. Why could they not have waited until we made signals to that effect? This persistence irritated us more than our defeats had. We tore up their gazettes, fired upon their flags of truce, and shot and tomahawked their messengers. This clash of different cultural values, resulting in misunderstandings and frustration, is something we're going to see a lot as our story progresses. Resolving the conflict depended a little on how close the two hapu were, or how much they hated each other. In some cases, the victors would marry women from the defeated hapu, which may result in a total merge of the two groups. 
though this depended on how many people the defeated hapu had. The less people, the more likely of total integration. Women actually had a rather big role to play in ending wars, primarily through arranged marriages between the noble classes of two warring hapu. However, when you put it like that, it makes it sound like it was the women's choice to do so, that they had some sort of active agency in the situation, which almost certainly they didn't. Natipuro elder Tutanihoneho explains a bit about why women's role was so crucial. Quote, If a peace is concluded in time of war by men, it will not be a firm or lasting one. It is termed a male peace, and stands for treachery, deceit, trouble. But if women assume the function of making peace, that is known as a female peace, and it will be a firm, durable one. End quote. Sometimes when peace was made between hapu, it was called a tatoponamu, the greenstone door. This metaphor was meant to represent the safe passage of people between the rohe of the two hapu, hence the door, as well as the everlasting, enduring nature of the peace, hence the strong and durable greenstone. Sometimes a mere or other ponamu weapon might be handed over to signify this in a more tangible way. Although the kind of entire idea behind a tatoponamu is that it is an unbreakable piece, some sources claim that it was a male piece that could be violated at any time, like Tutanihoneho said. It's possible that tatoponamu was more aspirational than an actual reality. But there are some stories of this type of peace lasting for some time, so it is unclear how secure a peace made in this way actually was. Other aspects of keeping peace were things like reciprocal gift-giving and feasting, which would strengthen social bonds, as well as the exchanging of high-value hostages, which could sometimes be the ariki themselves. Although we've talked about peacemaking a fair bit, most military campaigns didn't end with a formal negotiation or forging of a peace. It was just the end of the current round of hostilities. Hapu are often described as keeping account with other hapu, always knowing who are their creditors and who owe them debts. What I mean by that is, they knew what incidents had occurred, and which of those had been avenged, and which still hadn't been answered. And of course, this cut both ways. So there was always enough beef to go around, meaning tensions could flare up at any moment. This results in hapu having intergenerational blood feuds, and also makes it harder for historians to classify when they were truly at peace. In one sense, Māori were never at peace. They just had a temporary ceasing of hostilities. Peace could last for decades, but only endured because one side had been so thoroughly beaten that they were building up their strength to strike back. You could say that about a lot of groups throughout history, so I guess it depends on how you define the word peace.
Usually, the people going between each group and negotiating the end to a war were those related to both sides, since each side trusted them to come and go without issue. Often, these envoys would tie leafy branches or harakeke to their heads to indicate they were there peacefully to negotiate, though this wasn't guaranteed to stop the host from executing them anyway. Assuming these messengers weren't killed, then they would stand up in front of a group of people, presumably nobles and other important individuals, detailing the other side's offer. If this was accepted, then a day of celebration would ensue, with speeches, gift-giving, as well as exchanging any toimoko that had been taken during the conflict. Again, there may be some intermarrying if there were compatible matches. Naturally, any children from such marriages were related to both sides, and as such would help to deter either hapu from attacking. Though, of course, it wouldn't be a total barrier, since it wasn't uncommon for those related to one hapu but resided with another to fight against their kin. There is even a couple of reports of Rangatira using the marriage day itself to kind of be a smokescreen to swoop in and slaughter the enemy. Of course, peace negotiations weren't just for ending hostilities. The victorious hapu would often try to get some benefit out of the defeated, such as getting the right to harvest from a bit of land, or getting regular tribute of food every year, and things like that. Though this kind of tributary relationship between hapu was rare. It wasn't terribly desirable to be beholden to another hapu and essentially their vassal. When it did occur, though, it seems to have been somewhat reciprocal, with the quote-unquote overlord giving gifts equal to that of what the vessel gave. Given this utu aspect, I think perhaps calling this a vassal or tributary relationship is incorrect, as those words come from a more western lens. To expand, it perhaps was an attempt at extended peace, where both sides were expected to give something to each other, or at the very least, the receiver was expected to honour Utu. This would allow Hapu to receive gifts and also spend time with one another, because of course, to give the gifts, you had to actually go to where the Hapu lived, meaning they could strengthen old bonds and forge new ones some that may even result in marriage, further strengthening the connection between hapu and making it more likely that hostilities wouldn't resume. Again, it wasn't guaranteed, but every little bit helps. Often, if the two hapu lived in areas with different resources, such as one on the coast and one more inland, then they would exchange food items that the other didn't have like kiridu for fish. However, once the defeated had regained their strength, they would usually stop sending gifts and resume hostilities. Throughout European history, one key reason that wars were fought was over land, or rather, more specifically, who owned that land. Or even more specific than that, who had the right to collect taxes from the people on that land? 
So a question you may have is, did ownership of land change hands after a war in pre-European Aotearoa? First, we should remember that Māori didn't have the same system of property ownership that we are familiar with. There wasn't really a concept of privately owned land. The whenua was collectively owned by the hapu, and even then, to say they quote-unquote owned the land isn't quite correct. They had rights to the land, to live on and harvest from it. No one can own Papatuanuku. That aside, in general, military campaigns didn't end with land being conquered and taken. Usually, battles only occurred between a toa and one pa, or occasionally a couple of pa. So, the toa normally weren't in a position to occupy the pa and the surrounding land, given the rest of the hapu that the pa belonged to would be living in the area, along with other pa nearby that would come to their aid. So, when a battle was won, a toa was usually pretty keen to get out of there before reinforcements were notified. This meant to take and occupy land was a task achieved over many years, rather than a sweeping force beating and occupying numerous pa in a single campaign. Redistribution of land did sometimes happen though, usually as the result of a marriage that occurred during peace talks, if the women or men already had rights to a particular area, due to their status as a noble or something similar. Obviously, the type of land that a pa resided in made it more or less likely to become a target for capture and a topic of discussion in the subsequent negotiations. The two main factors being how fertile the land was, land to grow food is always good, and what kind of vegetation was in the area. Places with forest that had ample foraging resources and trees for waka, buildings and such, were more desirable than other areas like scrubland or wetland, though those were important in their own ways too. Access to rivers, lakes or the coast where fish could be caught was also a consideration. This whenua raupatu, land taken by conquest, was recognised by Māori culture as a rightful claim to the whenua. However, the land needed to be held for a long time before it could be considered a permanent claim, and during that time, every other hapu in the area is going to be trying to kick you out, because if they succeeded, it invalidated the claim. Hence why it wasn't very common to take land through violence. The maths on the calculation just doesn't really check out unless it was a really good piece of land. It did happen on occasion though. Land could be taken just through sheer force of violence rather than any sort of negotiation. And in those cases, once an area was taken over by a new hapu, it was rare for the ousted group to be hunted down and totally exterminated, since it's hard to do and time-consuming. Generally, any survivors would either escape into the bush or hills to band together to start a new group slash re-establish the old one, or they would flee to a different hapu and join them. 
If the hapu were able to remain together, they may invade the rohe of a weaker hapu to claim their territory. When a hapu was forced out of their home, it sometimes resulted in them moving to an area that had been previously uninhabited, meaning more and more areas in Aotearoa became inhabited and exploited for resources. Overall, there were a lot of good reasons to go to war, apart from the obvious around Utu and taking resources or land. Of course, this assumes you are on the winning side. Losing a war never has any good results. For example, a non-material reason for going to war was for the murder of someone, which would be good for the social cohesion of the hapu. Losing one person was a big loss to the community, and would need to be avenged, as well as deterring the enemy from pulling that kind of shit again. It also helped with keeping their standing with other hapu who weren't directly involved, but will have been looking on with interest. They may think twice about messing with someone who is willing to go balls to the wall if they're crossed. And on the flip side, it indicates to allies that you're strong, capable, and worth keeping around. War also has a way of bonding people together, the kind of bond that can only be forged through intense struggle, as well as uniting the wider hapu together with a single common goal, or against a single common enemy. Now, that isn't to say war is good. It isn't. It causes death, disease, suffering and destruction, often needlessly. War sucks shit, no matter the time, place or culture. I wanted to leave this episode on something slightly more positive, but if I'm being quite honest, I could not find a way to do that. Sometimes, history is just absolutely fucking shit, but learning about these things is really important. We can't be looking at our history through rose-tinted glasses or a greasy Vaseline lens over our eyes. We have to just take it as what it is. And sometimes, often, that means having to face some of these stark and horrible realities. If you're like me, that is to say Pākehā, and you're listening to this, going forward there's going to be a number of stark realities that you're just going to have to come to terms with. But that's okay, we're here together, we're here for the journey, we're here to learn, we're here to be better people. We're here to be better citizens of Aotearoa New Zealand. And that means we have to learn and acknowledge what happened in the past, so that we can move forward with that understanding. I hope that makes sense. I guess I'm just rambling a little bit here and kind of philosophizing a little bit, because... As you might know, this is our last foray into the pre-European era. Or rather, it's the last planned and scripted episode that I had. I will be rounding out this chapter with a Q&A episode, which will be the next one in your feeds. I've already received a number of questions, but please do continue to send them in if you have anything you would like answered about any topic we have covered thus far. That episode will release somewhere around late December or early January, depending on how efficient my research is. So while that Q&A episode is the 
technically last episode. This one feels more like the spiritually last one, if that kind of makes sense. Instead of giving you the usual sort of ending that I give, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming along this journey thus far. It's been 125 episodes and five years pretty much just talking about pre-European Māori culture. I think if I had pitched that as an idea for a podcast or a radio show to say a major news outlet or something like that, I doubt they would have gone for it. So to say that not only have we managed to make that a reality, but that it is successful, that all of you out there want to listen to it, I think is quite a major achievement. So thank you so much for coming along this journey. Thank you so much for listening and ultimately for proving that this kind of content is important. I don't really like calling it content. It makes me feel like I'm a weird YouTuber or something. Instead, I'm a weird podcaster. But it does show that this is the kind of thing that people want. That this is the kind of thing that people find important. And not to like really blow my own trumpet, but I do think this kind of thing is really important. I genuinely think people in Aotearoa need to know about our history, at least in a cursory kind of idea. Obviously, we're going super deep and way more in detail than what most people kind of want or need. Anyway, this has been 45 minutes worth of content that hopefully you have enjoyed and also hopefully you've learned something as well. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.